This is a very important week in the Jewish calendar. We are about to, we are about to have Yom Hazikaron and Yom Ha'atzma'ut. We are about to talk about the days which are very important in terms of our national calendar, in terms of our identity. The question that we, we should be dealing with, and this is something which was, has been raised and has triggered, uh, it has been triggered in our consciousness over the last little bit, is the role of the diaspora Jew. In other words, all of us sitting in this room, who we may have been in Israel recently, we may have been in Israel for Pesach, but in the end of the day we live, and we proudly live as Americans. Yes, I actually got naturalization just a few weeks ago. <laughs> it didn't help with the accent. <laughs> I did pass the test and I have to tell you on a sidebar, what a fascinating country. <laughs> I doubt that any elementary school kid even knows about all the civics of this country, but what an incredible country. Go, go, go into that another time. Um, in the meantime, for all of us, for all of us here living here in America, there's this, there, we've had to deal with a particular issue. And that issue is the following. Recently, as we've known, there's been, there's been a lot of attacks in Europe. There's been a lot of anti-Semitism rising, um, anti-Semitism. And re uh, following the attacks both in France and in Belgium, President Netanyahu, Prime Minister Netanyahu, issued some statements talking about how Israel is the home of all Jews. So just to, just to follow this through, on the second page is the New York Times article. I actually removed the picture of Netanyahu because I chose, of course, the most unflattering uh, picture of Netanyahu in the, in the New York Times, of course. In the, the, the Brackettdorf area, he says, Jews have been murdered again on European soil only because they were Jews, Mr. Netanyahu said, in Sunday in Jerusalem. Of course, Jews deserve protection in every country, but we say to Jews, uh, to our brothers and our sisters, Israel is your home, um, he added. But expressing the unease felt by many Jews abroad over such comments, I'm not sure how to pronounce this fellow's name, Yair Melchior, the Denmark's chief rabbi, said he was disappointed by Mr. Netanyahu's call. People from Denmark moved to Israel because they love Israel, because of Zionism, but not because of terrorism. Mr. Melchior told the Associated Press on Sunday, if the way we deal with terrorists to run somewhere else, we should all run to a deserted island. Going further on the next page in this article, um, skipping the first bracket off, the second one is, apparently piqued by Mr. Netanyahu's remarks in January, President Francois Hollande in France pledged during a speech in Paris, Holo uh, Paris Holocaust Memorial to protect all its citizens and told French Jews, your place is here, in your home, France is your country. On Sunday, the Danish Prime Minister, Helthorne Schmidt, uh, visited the Copenhagen synagogue where the attack took place and said, the Jewish community is large and an integrated part of Danish society. And the question you have to think about at the end of all of this is, who, who are we? Meaning, when we're living in this, in this diaspora community, who are we? Where do we belong? Where are our allegiances? Similarly, in a, a Times of Israel article, which, which captures the same, the same dynamic, on page 5, the, in a bracket of area, the, to, this is again Netanyahu's comment to all Jews of France, all Jews of Europe. I would like to say Israel is not just the place in whose direction you pray. The state of Israel is your home. Benjamin Netanyahu said Saturday in Jerusalem, the day after an attack on a, parish, a Paris kosher supermarket, randomly, that killed, uh, <laughs> they call, killed four Jewish men. This week, a special team of ministers will convene to advance steps in increasing immigration from France and other countries in Europe that are suffering from terrible anti-Semitism. All Jews who want to immigrate to Israel will be welcomed here warmly and with open arms. But for French Jews, the answer isn't so simple. The Israeli government stopped this Pavlovian response. Every time there's an attack against Jews in Europe, Rabbi Menachem Margolin, the, the director of European Jewish Association, told the Israeli website, uh, uh, news website NRG. So you have, to, you have to think about this. 
You have to think about the debate that's going on, has been going on over this year. If I could just... Now, to be quite honest, you know, on a personal level, to me, this, uh, you know, the statement of Netanyahu was actually quite a heartwarming one because, coming back to 1993, I remember as a child that at the time when the apartheid was ending, that Israel sent 10 LL planes. They, they earmarked 10 LL planes, which were empty, to be able to sit in the international airport through elections in the worry that there would be riots, but the people were very concerned about the bloody uprisings that would ensue, and to save the Jews. Now, to me, that was a, that was a heartwarming thing, the fact that there was a way out. There was, an, there was an escape hole because of Israel. But the issue is complicated, because think about it for a moment. Although it's true that when Netanyahu makes such statements, it enrages the French, uh, the French rabbinim and the French officials, then at the end of the day, let's just remember something. Where did those four families bury their dead? Every single one of them took their dead to Israel. At the Copenhagen attack, when you look at a picture of that synagogue and all the flowers that are laid outside, in and amongst the flowers is what? Is the Israeli flag. So the, quest, the, the, the issue of Israel and the issue of Jewish identity seems very much linked. And as much as people are trying to extricate it and point out that this is a French issue, this is an anti-Semitism issue, in the end of the day, people are still identifying to some degree with Israel, it's somehow part of that fabric of their, of their being. And the truth of the matter is, and at the end of the Times of the Israel article, he says it's an older issue. He says that on page 6, the, the author of this article says, Netanyahu is hardly the first Prime Minister to ruffle feathers into the diaspora this way. In July 2004, then-Premier Ariel Sharon irked French Jews with a similar call. If I have to advocate to our brothers in France, I will tell them one thing. Move to Israel as early as possible. It's interesting, by the way, that Sharon had such foresight. Meaning, you know, this is, this is before the rise of the last 10 years. And he already said this statement. Sharon told a gathering of North American Jews, uh, Jewish Federation leaders. I say to Jews all around the world, but I think they're, they're, this, it's a must and they have to move immediately. In response, it's, nothing's changed. French President Jacques Chirac told Sharon that he's not welcome in France. <laughs> <laughs> Things that history repeats itself again and again. What I'd like to point out is the following. What I'd like to point out is that this is an issue which we really need to address and think about. And I'm sure that we have, perhaps maybe not articulated it to a certain degree, is, is where do our allegiances lie? Where do our, where do our real allegiances lie? Is there a role or is it really, a role, or really is it a, a second-rate um, exile that we're in? Is there a role for being in the diaspora? Or is it just Nebuch, we can't make it to Israel, so we're living where we can't make it elsewhere? That's, that's really the question that's at hand over here. But the, story, the question didn't start in 2004. <coughs> the question started earlier. In 1949, if we go back a little bit further, in fact, there was a, there was a number of speeches that then Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion issued. Now remember, this is just after the birth of the State of Israel. 1949... And he is speaking on a number of occasions, and he said some comments which very, very much perturbed the American Jewish community at the time. Just to, to, to quote an article, I was, I'm, very, I'm very thankful for about J.J. Schachter, who pointed to these next two articles um, on this issue. And uh, this is an article by Tzvi Gannon uh, called An Uneasy Relationship. At the beginning of this, um, this um, the, ch the fourth chapter, it's called The Blaustein Ben-Gurion Understanding of 1950, which is in, on page 9. Um, it's, um, I bracketed off the second paragraph and it says, An innocuous speech by Ben-Gurion in Tel Aviv in November 1949 reported in the New York Herald Tribune aroused a hue and cry among non-Zionists Ameri in America. 
In, the prime, in, in it, the Prime Minister warned diaspora Zionists donors that the gifts would not give them any influence over Israel policies. And a, um, a warning that was evidently directed at Abba Hillel Silva and his followers in the ZOA after they'd been accused by Morgenthau and Montours of trying to use American Jewish fi- financial clout for such purposes. The main thrust of the speech was that Zionists need to adjust their thinking to the new reality of an independent, sovereign and pioneer state. But this was not the point of the AJC member who wrote to Blaustein from Dallas, Texas. What bothered him was that the Prime Minister used the expression Israel promotes the gathering of exiles from their dispersion, which the Texas member alleged proved that Ben-Gurion was going back on his assurances to Blaustein in October that he would call for the immigration of Israel of only a few American Jews with special technical skills. Who, who was um, Blaustein? Jacob Blaustein of the day, from Baltimore, was, um, was at the time the leader of the, the American Jewish Committee, AJC, and uh, a very, very powerful person. A person so powerful at the time in the, in the world of American Jewry that he was able to bring Ben-Gurion down to his knees. And Ben-Gurion had to reform the ideas that he talked about in his speeches in 1949 to the following. Just turn two pages, actually. You can see a picture of, um, of some of their meetings of, um, of Ben-Gurion and, and Mr. Mr. Jacob Blaustein um, in 51 there. You see on, on page, uh, page 11 as they met at, at various occasions. But if you take a look on page 12, there's a, an article in The Jew in the Modern World, which is David Ben-Gurion and Jacob Blaustein. In it, Ben-Gurion is forced to reform his, we will call it flagrant Zionism, as, um, as he was accused of, um, of issuing. And on the, the 13th page, you'll see, the pages on the leftmost bottom corner of the pages um, to see, this is D- David Ben-Gurion reforming his statement. Take a look at the bracketed parts. It is our great pride that our newly gained independence has enabled us in this small country to undertake the major share of the great and urgent task of providing permanent homes under conditions of full equality to hundreds of thousands of our brethren who cannot remain where they are and whose heart is set on rebuilding their lives in Israel. Skipping to the next paragraph. It is most unfortunate that since our state came into being, some confusion and misunderstanding should have arisen as regards to the relationship between Israel and the Jewish communities abroad in particular that of the United States. These misunderstandings are likely to alienate sympathies and create disharmony where friendship and close understanding are of vital necessity. To my mind, the position is perfectly clear. The Jews of the United States, as a community and as individuals, have only one political attachment, and that is to the United States of America. You can imagine what he must be thinking as he's saying this. I mean, you can imagine the pressure that David Ben-Gurion had to have above his head to, to say such a statement in a public address. They owe no political allegiance to Israel. In the first statement which the representative of Israel made before the United Nations after admission to that international organization, he clearly stated, without any reservation, that the state of Israel represents and speaks only on behalf of its own citizens and in no way presumes to represent or speak in the name of the Jews or citizens of any other country. As a footnote, historically, it's fascinating that the Arab world didn't think the same way. (laughs) Meaning, to say, the incredibly vibrant communities in Iraq, in Syria, in Egypt, in Morocco, didn't, didn't get the same welcome as that, that Ben-Gurion is pointing out of it. He said, you know, Israel is one thing and the Jews of the diaspora another thing. That's not what the Arabs said. There were 800 to 900,000 refugees from the world of Islam, of Jews, who had left centuries, millennia-old communities because they didn't believe this. They understood that the identity of Jews were connected to the state. They didn't trust them, despite, despite the fact that they, were, they would argue otherwise. In response, just to, just to get a sense of um, this gentleman, Jacob Blaustein, if you turn the page, 
in, in amidst, his, uh, amidst his response, this is what Jacob Blaustein says. I'm just going to read the first two paragraphs. He says, while Israel, and you, <laughs> you have to just appreciate the sarcasm here. While Israel has naturally placed some burdens on Jews elsewhere, particularly in America, he calls it burdens, right? That's, that's the way he views uh, the, the statehood of Israel. It has in turn meant much to Jews throughout the world, meaning it's, it's a good thing in general. For hundreds of thousands in Europe and Africa and the Middle East has provided a home in which they can attain their full stature of human dignity for the first time. In all Jews it has inspired pride, admiration, and even in some instances it has created passing headaches. Israel's rebirth and progress coming after the tragedy of the European Jewry in the 1930s and World War II has done much to raise Jewish morale, meaning Israel isn't the solution to the Holocaust. It's a nice thing after the Holocaust, right? Uh, meaning as well as American America, right? Jews in America and everywhere can be, more, uh, can be more proud than ever in their Jewishness. But we must, in a true spirit of friendliness, sound a note of caution to Israel and its leaders. Now that the birth pangs are over, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure that statement is warranted. Now that the birth pangs are over, and even though Israel is undergoing growing pains, that's apparently the next stage, it must recognize that, we ma that, that the matter of goodwill between its citizens and those of other countries is a two-way street. That Israel also has the responsibility in the situation, a responsibility in terms of not affecting adversely the sensibilities of Jews who are citizens of other states by what it says or does. That's a very important statement. Meaning what Israel's policies say should not impact a person living, a Jew living in a, current, a foreign country. Right, as can you see what's happening today. In this connection, you are the realists and, you are realists and want, fa want facts. And I would be less than frank if I did not point out to you that American Jews vigorously repudiate any suggestion or implication that they are in exile. That's a very, that's a very strong statement. Meaning to say, Ben-Gurion, don't get up on your soapbox and start telling us that this is about kibbutz Goliath and we need to come to Israel and this is about statehood because in the end of the day, we're quite happy over here. And he was an extremely powerful person and, um, and you can you, to imagine to me that the Israeli Prime Minister had to bow and cringe in front of him to say the, the words that he said beforehand. You can imagine how, uh, how powerful the, the power this man wielded. And in fact, that's only 1956. Again, the issue came up and um, we don't, I'm not going to, for the sake of time, spend too much time on it, but you can see on page 17 and 18 a letter that David Ben-Gurion um, dated the 2nd of October 1956 reassess, uh, re reaffirms his statement of 1950 um, to, the prior, to, the, to Mr. Blaustein because there were concerns about the, the way in which he was treating diaspora jury. And just turning the page at the end, um, actually let's just see over here. I'm going to start at the very bottom of page 17 actually. He reaffirms his statement which you just read and he says, in confirming what I've said then, the last paragraph on page 17 and the first page of the letter, I think I need not repeat that I am myself an unrepentant Zionist. A Zionist perhaps of a kind different, entirely differently from any of those you know. For me, Zionism means to live in Israel and personally to build there our new Jewish independent life based on the te teachings of our prophets and on the conquests in science and technology achieved in the modern world. But other Zionists are entitled to their own interpretations of Zionism, just as Jews in different countries are free to hold varying views on what constitutes Jewishness, which is, by the way, something which is not perhaps they're entitled to. We discussed this a little while back. As Democrats, we can all agree in the most friendly way to differ on some points while rejoicing in many others on which we are, all, we are in complete agreement. Yours sincerely, David Ben-Gurion. 
So you see the issue coming up again and again and again, and this, the, the tension that arises. And we may not perhaps feel that tension as strongly as Jacob Blaustein did, but there's certainly an element of it where, where the, the notion of, you know, of American Jews being a second-rate jury to Israel, and therefore what's their role? We have to, that's something we need to spend time, we spend time thinking about a particular role. So in order to address this from the, uh, from the, Torah, the Torah sources, this actually occurs, this, this argument occurs even earlier. And that is, is what, at the beginning of what's called the Second Commonwealth. We're at a point now we'll call Shiva Tzilon, the return to Zion, which is, which is in a remarkable historic pro, uh, pro, uh, prophetic era that we're living in, in the last 70 years. But there happened to be another time where we had a similar, historically very similar um, occurrence. And that was the building of the Second Temple. Because of the building of the Second Temple, we'll remember that Israel didn't have independence. We weren't an independent state at the time. What happened was we were a subsection of the Persian Empire, and the Persian Empire's policy, instead of the Babylonian way of dealing with things, Babylonians were very uh, black or white about things. They would kill everybody, and uh, that's how they ruled. The Babylonians did, had a very fast rise, a very fast fall, and they were taken over by the Persian Empire, which ruled for many years. The Persian Empire had a better idea about things. They said, look, you know what we'll do is we'll reinstitute cultures of every nation that we control. When it talks about in Megillus Esther, 127 states, what it means to say is that what they did was they think they they encultured those 127 diverse states to have their own rule, but they paid severe taxes to the Persian the Persian the Persian government. The Persia, Persia controlled these countries as opposed to breaking the countries. So what they said is, look, you know, you have a Jewish homeland, there's Judea, we'll send you back, you'll make your temple, you'll do your things, we'll pay crazy taxes to us, we'll make sure that you make no, no political statements against us. But that's what's going to happen. And so therefore, for the first half of the second temple, we weren't a free state. But we were trying at the, sa at the same time to, to come to Eretz Israel. Um, under the guidances of Anshik Nesagdola, there was Ezra, and there was later Nehemiah, who became the, uh, the political leader. And it was at this time that what was fascinating is, is that there wasn't a great aliyah. There really wasn't. The, um, in Sefer Ezra, it talks about 42-odd thousand Jews who came up, which is a fraction of the Jews of Bavel. And um, in, this, in this whole discussion, the Sefer Kuzari, in his second section, Rav Yehuda Halevi, discusses this whole episode. And he's explaining to the, there's a conversation, there's a Socratic discussion between the Chaver, who's the, the wise Jewish man, and this Melech Kuzar. The king of the Khuzars who's trying to convert to Judaism and is trying to understand Jewish concepts. And they start talking about the land of Israel. And the, 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 the Chaver, the Talmud Chacham, starts telling him about all the incredible levels of living in Israel. And he talks about all the Gomorrahs about, you know, living in Israel. And if you don't live in Israel, it's as if you don't have a, 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 a God. And all the, all the different Gomorrahs that we've seen and heard. And then the, 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 the Khuzari turns to him and he says, this is on the top of page 19, he says, if it's true, everything you're telling me, there's a full paragraph beforehand with all the statements about the importance of living in Israel. If that's true, then in the end of the day, you're not living up to it. You're not doing it justice, says the Kuzari. You're not living here. So, right? Rabbi Yudalevi lived where? Lived in Spain. He lived in Toledo. That's where he was born. Right? So it says, you and the rest of the community are talking about all these great ideals, but at the end of the day, you're living in your diaspora communities. And he goes on to say, and this Melech Kuzar says, every religion, Islam, Christianity, all say there's an incredible importance about this land. So why is it that you're not there? Meaning, why is it that you're not making every effort possible to get there? Says the Kuzari. Amar Kuzari, in, in paragraph Haftalad. 
Huvashtani Melech Kuzar. You've made me embarrassed. Vavona ze Huvasher Menaoi Menanu Milahash Miashlamas Mashiyaidanu Boyalikim Baez Shani. This is the sin that in the second temple that we sinned, which made us not be able to reach the levels of prophecy which we were able to. Kumosh Omar. In Zechariah, Rani Basimchi Bastion, Zechariah, living at the time of the rebuilding, said that there should be a rejoicing of the Bastion, the daughters of Zion. It should have been like the beginning. It should have been like the rebuilding. The rebuilding of the second temple should have been like the first. It should have been the same messianic level. If everybody had agreed to come. Aval, Shavu, Miksoson, Vinisharu Rubam, the greatest leaders that remained where? In, ba- in Babylon. They didn't want to leave their houses. They didn't want to leave their businesses. They had a good life and they stayed there. Meaning it's like when I'm sleeping but my heart's awake. Meaning the externalities of us are still sleeping. He says, I'm higher as modest and nevoa. Benayim. Kol dodi dofek kriyas olakim lashuv. When it talks about the Shira Shirim, how the beloved hears the knocking of her beloved, that's God calling us to return. By the way, Rashabta argues that this, in fact, is, this is, this is where, this line in the Khazari is where Rav Soloveitchik took the name of his book in 1956, where his essay called Kol dodi dofek, referring to the Holocaust and to, uh, to the return to Zion. Based on this, based on this line in the Kuzari, and he goes on to say that the, what happens in, unfolds in Shir Hashirim is that the beloved is is asleep, and the and Hashem who represents the Doids, um, the, um, the 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 beloved comes knocks on the door, and and it takes time for the raya for the for the the deer the as Knesset Israel to wake up, and by the time we we say we've taken off our shirt, and how can we get up? We we're sleeping, and by the time we get to the door. The doid is gone. That's 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 the, the imagery of Shir Hashim. Says the Kuzari, that's what happened that's what happened in Bavel. There was a, an aliyah to Eretz Israel. It could have been it could have had the messianic potential that Zechariah was talking about. We missed it. We missed the boat. Why? Because we we are, we're quite happy in our diaspora communities. So coming back before David Ben Gurion, coming back before Netanyahu and, and Ariel Sharon, many, many centuries ago, this is this is what occurred. But the, there's a reason why this occurred. There's a reason why this occurred. And this requ- requires going back even further in history. Um, so for this, I'd like to uh, provide and think about two balances that we see in Jewish history. <coughs> two balances which are, which are important to consider. The first is what is known as Darach Shalom. There's a halacha, which is in the Mishnah, of, called Darach Shalom, in which Jews have to, Jews have to um, uh, provide for or seek out the peace of the country or the people or the nation that they're, they're amongst. Where did this come from? So I'd like to quote for you, uh, um, to you from a uh, very fascinating essay that Rabbi Jonathan Sachs has in his book To Heal a Fractured World. He has a chapter called The Kindness of Strangers, and he expounds upon this in many, many, many different instances. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says the following, just in the first highlight on page 20, he says, The ways of peace apply to idolaters, those opposed to everything we believe. Nonetheless, the sages ruled, we have basic responsibilities to them, not only the negative duty of not to harm them, but the positive duty of welfare. We have to provide them with food when they are hungry, financial support when they are poor, we must visit them when they are sick and comfort them when they are bereaved. That's actually a Mishnah. Now, in the next paragraph, he says, where did this idea come from? The rabbis derived it from a verse in the book of Proverbs, Fine. 
That is the textual warrant. Historically, however, it was born in the Jewish experience of exile. It emerged because Jews, having in the biblical era lived in their own land, were now dispersed minorities in pagan countries. Definitive in this context was the letter written 2,600 years ago by the prophet Jeremiah to the exiles in Babylon and Egypt. Let's put this letter in context. Yirmiyahu uh, the Hanavi, the prophet of doom, as everybody calls him. The person who is, who is calling, who is blowing the whistle for years and years and years. And he said, Babylon is coming. Babylon is coming. Don't fight. Pay their taxes. Don't fight. Pay their taxes. You're not in the spiritual, you don't have the spiritual capacity right now to fight them. Don't fight them. And Israel didn't listen. Israel made an alliance with Egypt and with Assyria and we were crushed. That, that, that led to the ultimate destruction um, of Babel. And Yirmiyahu kept on telling them, you're not up to the spiritual par that you think you are. You haven't got the right batting average. And then what happens? What happened is, is that it all occurred and he witnessed it. Right? And Eicha is attributed to Yirmiyahu himself. So now people are now being exiled and there are stages of exile as the Jews. The first 10,000 of Jerusalem are taken to Babylon. Among them, Yechezkel is um, in the first stage before the Dimitash is destroyed. What do you think Yirmiyahu should send in a letter to the Jews now in, in, in Babel? In, what, 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 what do you think he should put into that letter as, as he's going to address the Jews of the new, newly found exile which he warned about? What should he say? I don't want to say, I told you so. But I told you so. Meaning in the end of the day, right? I told you. I warned you. I shouted. You tried to kill me when I warned you. Now you're in exile. Okay, forget the personal vendetta. How would, he, how, how would you think he should advise them to be able to survive what they're about to, to, to um, undergo? What, what, what possibly could he say which is going to ascertain their, or guarantee their survival? Right, so meaning to shiver, re-identify yourselves, re reconnect. He says the most remarkable statement. This is in Perik Choftes near He says the following. Listen, this is, a, uh, this is a translation of it. Build houses, settle down, plant vineyards and gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and have children, seek the peace of the city in which you have been exiled. Pray to Hashem on its behalf, for in its peace you will find peace. Yermiel says a remarkable thing. He says, in the goddess that you're in, seek the, go seek the peace of the nation that you're in. Don't fight the identity of the place around you. This is a wise and far-sighted policy that shaped Jewish behavior from then to the present. <coughs> Jews were to maintain their identity as Jews, but at the same time contribute to the societies to which they belonged. If belonging is, too not, a is not too generous a, a word to describe the marginal and disenfranchised existence to, um, to which Jews were often condemned. Very interesting point that he's, he's saying. And the, he, has the, he has the kicker. Jeremiah was no less a utopian than Yeshayahu and Micha. But on this occasion, his prophecy was pragmatic. It was necessary. Seven centuries early, uh, um, uh, um, to later, so was the teaching of the sages. Or Darche Shalom, he's referring to. They had seen the failure of two other options. The first was assimilation, um, specifically Hellenization, the time of the Greeks. This robbed the Jews of their identity um, and led, as in the days of the Seleucids and the Maccabees, to the banning of religious practice. And the second was rebellion. In the last years of the Second Temple, and again 65 years later, at the time of the Bar Kokhba re revolt, these were the two most disastrous events of Jewish history, leading to defeat, disempowerment, and dispersion. Remembering Yirmiyahu, the sages formulated a third way, to sustain their faith through institutions that, unlike the Mikdash, could be established in anywhere, the synagogue, the school, the house of study, and the home. 
In the meanwhile, they would practice, they would practice what today would be called active citizenship in the countries of the dispersion. They would give, others, give to others in need as well as to the members of their own community. The way of peace were not peace. Israel was in exile. The times were out of joint. But the diaspora jury could, na- could nonetheless create, if not peace, then at least the way that led to it. That's what our Jonathan Sachs argues. Isn't that un- unbelievable? I mean, the foresight that Yirmiyahu Novi had to be able to understand the survival of Jews in a godless reality, which those hundreds of years later the Rabbonim understood in the formulation of the halachas of Darche Sholom were trying to preserve Jewish identity within the society that they were in. Very, very fascinating. And that's perhaps, perhaps that, that might be the reason why it is so easy to fall over the edge when that identity takes over. When that identity of settling down in that country becomes the first person identity, not as Yirmiyahu was, was suggesting. This, in fact, is, is brought to the fore by Rav Meir Simcha of Devinsk in a very, very famous piece he has in Parashas Bechokoisai. Rav Meir Simcha of Devinsk, I put all the, the bios that I could find on the front page, so you can see that Rav Meir Simcha of Devinsk lived in 1843 to 1926. Okay, so let's just put the dating, the dating correct on this. He lived in Devinsk, okay, and this is what he says well before the Holocaust. He says the following. I'm not going to read the entire thing. He points out in the first section, uh, it's on page 21. The Mishnah Chachma, Rav Meir points out the following. He says there's a general pattern in Jewish history. And that is, is that Israel or the Jews will arrive in a particular country, will settle down, will become part of that country, will start succeeding, and a wave will come. And that wave will send us out from that country, we'll have to find a new country with a foreign language, we won't understand how to, how to live there, we'll work and work and work so our kids can succeed, our kids will succeed, they'll become part of the society, and just a short while later, a greater wave will come and move us again from that place. And unfortunately, history has shown, for century after century after century historically, that's what's happened. So he says the following, and, and um, he says, and this is in the third column, there's a bracketed off area. Um, it, about uh, halfway down the, the page, it says, Kach shel This is the way of the nation. When they enter into a foreign land, they start off without any Torah founding. As a function of all the suffering and the decrees that had, that, that, and the expulsion that they had to suffer. They want to return to their, their source, they want to return to their, their holy roots. They will have, they will have set up institutions, they'll have lots of Torah studied. And, be, and the Torah will be re-established in the most magnificent institutions on, on, its, on, its, on its mountain. But then what's going to happen is the following generation, after the establishment of the Torah, well, you know, they're not going to be able to keep up to the same level. So what's, you know, the enterprising youth of the next generation, what are they going to do? They're going to look into other ideas. And they're going to forget the history of the Jewish dispersion. In a little while, they're going to say, you know what, our, you know, our history, it's not altogether 100% true, the stories they tell. And they'll become very happy citizens of that country. 
Yazov limudai datai. They'll start limudai datai. They'll start stop learning about the religion. Lil moid l'shonas They're going to start learning other languages, not theirs. Yolif mim kalta yolif mim takanta. They're going to learn from um, broken ways, not fixed ways. Yachshov. And this is an unbelievable statement. Ki Berlin hi Yerushalayim. People start saying that Berlin is Jerusalem. And they will become like the worst of that nation. He says, don't rejoice, Israel. Because another storm is coming. You're going to be taken to another shore where you're not going to know that language. And he goes on to say the same pattern will reinstitute itself. I mean, this is remarkable. This is, this is before Nuremberg. He, he had the foresight that, 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 that this person had over here. He died in 1926. Right? The, the closest he saw of anything was the Balfour Declaration in 1924. That's, and and this, is, this is what he was saying. What I, what I think over here is, is this Meshach is the foil to what Rabbi Sachs is saying. What's happening over here is, is the foil. Rabbi Sachs is saying that, that Yirmiyahu was saying it's important to become part of the society. It's important to contribute. It's important to be citizens of that society. What the Mishnah is saying is sometimes what happens is, is that it goes too far. And you lose the sense of identity and then you become too much a part of it. That's, the, that's what the Mishnah is saying over here. And it's important to weigh both of these because going too far on the one extreme or too far on the other extreme is not going to be successful. But these need to be weighed against one another. One step further. And that is, is, um, is the following. On a spiritual level, on a very highly spiritual level. Recently there was a sefer which came out called Hakitsav Rananul. Hakitsav Rananul, uh, which means wake up and sing. This is a, a, a book written by Rav Chaim Cohen, who is known fondly by many as the Chalban, the milkman. He is a hidden Kabbalist, no, not lo no longer hidden anymore. He gives Shiram in Eretz Yisrael, a very, very deeply profound individual. And he's written many books, um, and um, one of his books famously is called Hakitsav Rananul, and it's about, here's the... the the, the um, subtitle is His Orer Mitardemas Agalus To wake up from the sleep of exile To the, to the light of the Geula which is arising in our souls So this, he, here in this, in, this, in this section He delineates what he feels is what he calls Soed Agalus The foundation of what um, exile means this is, And this is on a spiritual plane Once again uh, we're going to share a tension in this This is the, the perspective that he shares very interesting. When Israel is exiled, there's a, there's a certain sense of death involved in this. As Yechezkel talks about the valley of the dry bones. Okay. Now, what, what does it mean? It's not just like a, he's not just throwing around the statement dead. He's, listen to the, the depth of what he means by the statement. It is a particular psychology he's identifying. <laughs> what death means is the division of a full body into pieces. In exile, we live an independent lifestyle as individuals, or even you might even say individual communities but separate and disparate communities. We are dismembered joints in different countries, in different cities, and within one city. Cells which are separate from one another. 
And he quotes the Vilnagon, The Vilnagon has a famous statement that he says the following. Although we don't have people among us who can explain what to do. Until there will be a divine flow from heaven. We remain a body without the soul within it that unites us. Entering into the diaspora where the Vilnagon lived is in fact, try to get to Eretz Israel, is the, the burial grounds. We have no way to protect ourselves. We had great groups. We had great institutions. But they kept getting scattered. There was no continuity. What are the bones, says the Vulnagon? The bones are the Talmidei Chachamim, the people who can lead the generations that at least in fractured parts there can be some form of identity. Those which are the structure of the body. Until even the bones disappear into dust. When we ask for the resuscitation of the dead, we're asking for the fact that we can rebuild our, we'll call it, communal body. The fact that we're able to have one identity as opposed to pieces that are lying up in different places and fraction, fractional pieces of a nation. The, the way that the Chalban understands it is, is that the diaspora reality is a fractional piecemeal reality. As opposed to when we lived in the time of Geula, now you can argue whether or not we're living in the times of Geula, Aschalte de Geula or not. But in the end of the day, what Geula meant was the fact that there was one unity, there was one sense of nationhood. So you, so you say at this point in time, you know, if this is what, if this is what Godless means, you know, that's it, you know, this, it's terrible, that's, that's horrific. So is there a benefit? Is there, was there a role? In Golis, or was this all punishment? Was it all black? Was it all dark? Was it all in the shadow? So for this to put intention over here is, um, I'd like to just um, revisit the words of another Kabbalist who lived just a little earlier, the pre-Tzadik, Rav Tzadik HaKohen Milubdin. Um, Rav, Rav Tzadik HaKohen was a, actually in fact grew up as a misnagate, uh, a very, very sharp student, and he, he uh, um, got involved in Hasidus and eventually actually became the Rebbe of Ishbitz very, very, very prominent figure um, a, a century ago in Jewish thought. And he says the, the most remarkable statement. This, this statement is just is something which, which really puts in tension the statement of the Chalban that we just read. And that is the following. Golus Bovel, this is, on, this is on page 24, the bottom left corner which is, which is marked off, in the Rav Tzadok, this is the pre-Tzadok on Shmois, and he says it in many places. He says this in his commentary on Megillas Esther. He says it in the pre-Tzadok many times throughout the beginning of Sefer Shmois. He says, "V'galus Bavel The exile of Bavel of Babylon was the preparation for the Torah Shabal Peh. What what Gomorrah do we study? We study the Talmud Bavli. Where meaning. You know, we, we try and we try. I love to get onto the green books of the Art Scroll Talmud Yerushalmi, and there are many people who are doing that. But in the, the day, what are we doing the da for? We're learning the Talmud Bavli. See, he says that the, the exile of Bavel was, was the precursor or the necessary place to develop that, 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 that learning. 
He says, as it says, Aboim Yashresh Yaakov, those who come will entrench Yaakov, El Talmudei Chachamim Shebabavel, Shoyset Tzitzim, Uprochim Latoira. That these are the Talmudei Chachamim of exile who produced the flowers of the Torah. Ba'alzei Omar, Umalu Penei Tevel, Tenuva, Shemisham Nispashet Torah Lechol Olam. That from Bavel was where Torah actually, the Torah Shabal Peh, the oral Torah spread through the world. Rechein kol hagolios, and similarly all exiles, hulis pashtus Torah Shabal Peh, shekol hagolios bichlal golos bavel. The goddess of bavel is simply the model for all the rest of the goddess that we're experiencing throughout history. And those golios are therefore the prerequisite for the development of the Torah Shabbat Peh. Rav Tzodok has a fascinating, fascinating theory, which really needs a lot more time than we, than we, than we have, and one day we can spend a little more time on it, that he, he understands that you notice that the proliferation or the development of the Torah Shabbat Peh only started in Golos. Up till then, they didn't need the Torah Shabbat Peh, the, the, the development part of it. The Torah Shabbat Peh, let's, let's make this clear. The Torah Shabbat Peh, things like what Tefillin is, or, um, what shape Tefillin are, what, uh, what the uh, Priyat's Hadar is, that it's an Esrog, that we got from Sinai. But the development, the droshes, the expansion of the Torah Shabbat Peh into an axiomatic system only really started in the times of the Mishnah, which really was at the times of the Second Temple, which was essentially the beginning of, or the, um, at, the, at the time of the continuation of Golos, which carried on through the, the redaction of the mission in the year 200 to the redaction of the Talmud around the year 499 and the continued experience of those who wrote Torah Shabbat Peh and developed the Torah Shabbat Peh throughout the Golas. And he feels and he understands that the experience of the Jew through diaspora and the cultures that surrounded him were the catalyst to be able to develop that Torah Shabbat Peh to bring back he, what he understands is what he'll call the Klippos these, they're, they're deeply embedded shards of a broken pottery edifice that we're bringing back from every country that we go through as we reconstitute that edifice of Torah Shabbat Peh. The Torah which was given at Sinai was the potential pregnant Torah waiting to be developed, but it needed, unfortunately, the diaspora, at least perhaps as a, maybe a plan B, it needed that to be able to develop that and to reconstitute what it could have been to the pure edifice that we have today as the, um, at the end of this period of Golis. So again, once again, just to, just to, just to focus on what we did today, just to, if you could turn back to the first page, just to get a sense of, what, of, of, this, of this notion. We focused on Netanyahu and the Jews and France. We went back to David Ben-Gurion and, and Jacob Blausi. We saw a few articles. But then we said that this actually came back already, the tensions began at the times of the Sefer Kuzari, many years earlier, at the time of the Second Commonwealth, so Shema Shivas Tzion, the Second Base of Mikdash. Where did this come from? And what we studied was the tension, of Rabbi, as Rabbi Sachs points out, about the Chidush that Yirmiyahu Anavi brought to the idea of Darach Yishalom, later on as, as codified by the rabbis, of being a part of the society, and the danger that the Chachma brings of becoming too much a part of that society. On the spiritual level, we talked about the tension between what the Akits of Aranandu, rather the Chalban, talks about of the notion of Golos being a partial, fractured reality, and the notion that Rav Tzadok HaKohen talks about of being there to reconstitute what you can get from that culture on a spiritual level, the Torah Shabbat Peh. Once again, this, this hopefully is the introduction to this very complex topic that I, that I feel that personally I struggle with, and I'm sure that many of us do. Thank you very much for listening.